From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Today on the show, we're continuing our special series, Institutional Shift, co-hosted by Dave Chen, the CEO of Equilibrium Capital and a longtime friend of Impact Alpha. Dave and David Bank, editor of Impact Alpha, are exploring the shift of institutional capital towards sustainable investing. In this episode, they're joined by Ashby Monk. Ashby heads Stanford's Global Project Center, a hotbed of activity that is engaging some of the world's biggest asset owners. Let's jump right into their conversation. Hello, I'm delighted to be with two of my favorite interlocutors, Dave Chen, Chair of Equilibrium Capital, and Ashby Monk, Director of Stanford's Global Projects Center. Dave, as you know, is working with us at Impact Alpha, and he suggested we bring on Ashby to uh, help illuminate some of the issues of institutional capital and what's happening with the big pools of money in the world. And I'm delighted to just sit back and listen to this, this conversation. Dave, take us away. David, thank you so much. And thank you to Impact Alpha for allowing us to, uh, to open up this set of topics. Ashby, maybe we can start by, if you wouldn't mind, just giving a sense of what your center does. It's got this wonderful innocuous name. And you've built a consortium in that center. And if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about the center, the consortium, and maybe a little bit about what binds uh, those entities together. Yeah, sure. So first of all, it's a pleasure to be here and, and I'm honored to be the, the first guest. Look, the Research Center at Stanford, we're trying to help the world of long-term investors live up to that moniker and be long-term. Uh, the engineers walk in the hallways at the at the Stanford Engineering School where we are housed. Uh, they're going to need patient, aligned capital to go build the things that they want to build, uh, whether it's a solar farm, a new type of building, a new piece of technology, a new drone, a driverless car. The makeup of the investors matters. And so the work that we do uh, originally really focused a lot on project finance and how do we think about the the funding and financing of infrastructure and has evolved over the past five or six years as I've been in charge to really just think about what is, what is patient capital? How do we access these big pools of capital? Um, how do we put that capital to work productively in the real economy and, and use that capital to try to go out and solve big problems? Uh, that takes us into a whole bunch of different research projects, which I can tell you about, but at the core, that's that's the mission and the objective. Ashby, can you give us an example of of the kinds of of investors that you're building this conversation around? I mean, what is a long term investor, yeah. and what are some examples of that? I you know I like internally to, with our team, I call these folks giants. Uh, they are generally big um, asset owners in that they are the the stewards of the capital, um, either on behalf of the sponsor or the sponsor themselves. And so they tend to come with names like endowment, foundation, pension fund, uh, sovereign development fund, sovereign wealth fund, pension reserve fund, reserve investment corporation, stabilization fund, um, probably go on for a while with the, all the different names that can fit into this category. But I think what binds them is they are the asset owner. Uh, 
Um, they are in the business of either investing this capital to go achieve uh, a rate of return target or contracting with you know, private sector asset managers to go and invest um, to achieve some rate of return target. They all are trying to use financial services and the, and the financial markets in order to lower the cost of some looming obligation. So if it's a pension fund, um, we've got some looming retirement obligation out there into the future. We are going to pool this capital. We're going to invest it in the market and hopefully through the power of compounding and the smart and wise investment of professional um, asset managers, portfolio managers, we will lower that cost. And the truth that that's the truth across all these organizations. So a foundation isn't managing a pension liability, but it's managing some, uh, you know, some liability stream. An endowment is helping to keep a university up and running. A sovereign fund is trying to help a, a state um, maintain their sovereignty uh, through management of, you know, some distant liability. But that's that's what binds them together. Let me just jump in one second on the on the aligned intermediary, which which we, we've always found really interesting because they've actually committed real dollars to put down, right? You're actually moving, moving, helping them move money, right? We're helping them move money and deals have been closed. And the, the interesting thing about the AI was it kind of emerged out of all the research that I was doing at, at, at Stanford, where we realized that to, tr to truly move this capital, you need to understand the investors as much as you understand the deals. Um, you know, we had, when we were setting this up, or at least the initial ideas of, of doing the research towards setting it up. We we're coming at the end of this kind of green bubble and burst and, and kind of the clean tech crater was still smoldering there on Sand Hill Road. And so the world of institutional investors were like, clean? No chance. Like We're just not interested. And so the project was really about how do we help these investors get back into the space and deploy capital and show that you can generate incredibly high risk adjusted returns in this sustainable sector. And in doing the research, we realized there's actually a lot of deals that fit those parameters. You know, you don't have to go and invest in like the, the clean tech startup to, to deploy a bunch of capital in this space. You can go and invest in infrastructure assets that are, you know, fully wrapped with insurance and an offtake agreement and are going to generate seven or 8% unlevered. It's like, this is perfect for institutional investors. But when we got into these organizations, we realized they, they didn't realize that this was an opportunity. They didn't have like a, a silo or a product fit necessarily, didn't really fit in their infrastructure bucket, didn't really fit in their private equity bucket. And then the offerings coming out of the manager universe didn't seem particularly well aligned, not only with their product buckets, but with just like the way they saw the world. The people who realized that clean energy was actually a great investment uh, choice like OP Trust has been building platform companies in Europe since 2004, um, but they could do it directly. And so the ones that realized this space was attractive had internal capabilities and didn't need managers. And so we ended up in this weird cycle where there just wasn't much product available. Um, and when you had the product, the people that you were pitching it to didn't quite understand how it fit. And so we had a market failure. I mean, it was a classic market failure where we had to fill that void with something. And that something was meant to be with a little A and a little I and aligned intermediary. 
And I said that word so many damn times, it became the name of the organization. It was just meant to be an aligned intermediary that truly understood the needs of the institutional investor community and aligned them with high quality uh, assets and investment opportunities in the private sector. Ashby, you're, you're in a unique position. And as you mentioned, you're, you're at the epicenter of at least five major institutional alliances and consortiums. And because we're at Impact Alpha, I'd like to focus this conversation, the rest of this conversation, on the issues of whether it's climate, SDGs, uh, ESG, and, and really open up why, why is this a topic that's of interest to, to these institutional investors? We tend to think of them as large, multi-hundred billion dollar behemoths that uh, you know, are faceless. And, uh, and, and, and why are they paying attention to these sets of, 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 of either risks or opportunities? <laughs> so I might say, why haven't they been? Like, why is it our job to go and evangelize for the future of energy and a more sustainable um, energy footprint for planet Earth? Up until recently, this was perceived to be an, e an ESG project, um, an impact project, and that, you know, if you really want to make money, you know, you, you can't add in these extra financial risks into your investment decision making. So I question your question, which is, why are they paying attention? They're now starting to pay attention because, well, they're intergenerational investors. They're going to be holding real estate for the next 30 years in Florida. And they're, they're buying things that they expect to shoot off cash flows for 40 years. And if you're not thinking about these risks, aren't you almost breaching your fiduciary obligation? That's starting to come home to these organizations. And especially as we're building internal capabilities in this in this ecosystem, right? pension fund, sovereign fund, endowment, they're, they really are buying these assets with the expectation they might hold them for decades. And anytime you're going to hold an asset for decades, it's a very useful moment to think about, well, what are these long-term risks we're subjected to? And environment is an obvious one of them. So are labor practices, so are you know, governance procedures and diversity issues. But if you're holding a, you know, a hydro asset somewhere, you're probably going to want to know that 20 years from now, the rivers are still going to be flowing there. And that's a pure icy veined capitalist thing to do. And that plays into this framework of investment decision making that is standard among our pension plans in the West, at least, where we have to do the things that generate the return. For a long time, that return orientation pushed us away from the environment because it was perceived as like a hippie thing. Now that the data is coming in and we're seeing how it works, that focus on the environment um, is facilitated by that return agenda. One of the things I want our listeners to, to get a sense of is, is, is listen to the way that you've talked about this just in the last few minutes. And, and, and it's all couched in risk to the asset over a long period of time. And so when yeah. you're living in a world of long tail risks and long tail assets, you begin to think, well, geez, in the next 20 years, I'm going to hold on to this thing. 
if the river does dry up, then that probably makes my asset less valuable. And, 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 and you've now put that together with another concept, which is and fiduciary duty technically is the duty of care and duty of loyalty. And if my loyalty is to the pensioners, as an example, and they have a long horizon of which my obligation to them is matched, and duty of care is that I actually pay attention to the things that might be 20 and 30 years long, then I might be in breach of both if, in fact, I ignore these kinds of long-tail risks in my long-tail asset. I mean, I love these, I love these judo moves where you, you take this behavior that for a long time was you know, the bane of your existence and you convert that behavior into a way of solving a problem. You know, they can, they can stick to their fiduciary duty. Fine. That's great. Be wary of the influences that could deviate you from delivering on your pension promise. But I think now we can talk about this more, but I think with all the alternative data coming out of satellites, coming out of our mobile phones, coming out of our cars, we're starting to understand how the built environment and the environment generally is changing as a result of climate change. And that will flow through into investment logic. That will inevitably flow in. And what I find fascinating about this is that there's a tendency uh, to think about many of the things that you just said and, and, and sort of interpret that as this is about high-tech investing. And, and, and what you're really saying, though, and, and, and again, I want to just make sure that, that our listeners you know, get this, is you're also highlighting the fact that if I own a $200 million building in San Francisco, I have to be aware that that $200 million building is also subject to these environmental risks or changes that may affect my asset value. Totally. The disruption to your portfolio from climate, from technology, that's, that's coming from population growth, urbanization. You know, just, just like you name your long-term uh, secular trend and then apply it to the built environment. And I promise you, you will find threats that you probably should be managing. To what extent is this conversation being talked about inside of your five consortiums, inside of the OP trusts, inside of the CalPERS and CalSTRS and the New Mexico pensions, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, increasingly. So the, there are organizations that, you know, they're, they're less amenable to the sustainability and environmental arguments. But, but like you've mentioned it, OP Trust, like they've been doing these platform companies in Europe since 2005. They didn't do it because they were hippies. They did it because they realized there's an incredible opportunity to generate high performance. And oh, by the way, like you've got the, the clean energy tailwinds behind you, you know, as a, as a kind of tail risk um, management uh, tool. So you're, you're investing in these things. And so they're, they're incredibly good at it. The, the pressure I've tried to put on Hugh O'Reilly and the folks at OP Trust is to explain what they've done to the world. Can I interrupt? Yeah, go ahead. What is OP Trust? For, for those folks that may not be uh, familiar, yeah. maybe they're Googling it right now. They're Googling it. Uh, it's a $20 billion fund out of uh, Toronto. It's the Ontario Public Sectors Employees Union trust. So if I was going to give the full name, it's Opsio Trust. 
Um, and they're, they're lucky. They've got one of these Canadians, Canadian governance models, which means they can build internal capability. They can hire, they can fire, they can compensate, and they can go out and build really smart, concentrated portfolios. And, uh, and so they've been very focused on building, unlike some of the other Canadians who I'm not going to throw under the bus right now, but who have been slower to the, the clean energy space. They saw it as a comparative advantage that they could cultivate. Uh, it's a long duration asset. You often need deep pockets. And so as a pension fund, you know, these assets make a lot of sense. And if you're competing, if you're the small Canadian pension plan competing against the big Canadian pension plans, um, you know, having a comparative advantage like that can be incredibly useful for carving out a name for yourself, for developing for developing a reputation and and simply for getting access to deals that aren't overbid. Um, and so they've done that. And and they're not alone. I mean, you could take New Zealand Super, who is a, a similar type of organization to OP Trust, really great internal capabilities, really smart team, um, small, dynamic, uh, and they've been out building portfolios of sustainable assets for a long time. Both those organizations are, are members of the Aligned Intermediary, um, which is also a reflection of their their interest in the space and, and New Zealand super uh, what's motivating yeah. what's motivating that oh they're 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 motivated to make money I mean they're if they're under constant pressure by local constituencies to demonstrate why they should exist so their mission is to um, create as big a pool of assets as they possibly can to help pay down future um, you know, pension, superannuation uh, liabilities that are that are uh, going to be coming due by the government. And so if you go look at like New Zealand's performance, they've done better over the last decade than almost every endowment. Do you, do you have any exposure to GPIF? Yeah, I mean, I it's hard not to be watching them uh, closely, I think. Um, uh, by the way, what is GPIF? It's the Government Pension Investment Fund of Japan, and it's a $2.4 trillion pool of assets that up until recently was basically a bond portfolio. And uh, the government decided in, in what I think is probably a wise choice to use those assets to try to generate a bit more return to hopefully um, secure the pension promises a little bit more uh, tightly. And so now they've got this capital and they're thinking, well, how do we do that? What is what is our mode of capital allocation? And with $2.4 trillion, you can imagine that's hard. Uh, that's hard to do. And they've made waves by saying they're only going to invest in ESG-sensitive ESG managers and um, they're going to be building a giant infrastructure portfolio that some people have – I think at one point I heard it was going to be $60 billion. Maybe that was the private equity. But they're they're so big that – Whatever they do will move markets. And, and, and do you have any uh, sense of why they made this move around ESG? Well, because pro- I, I don't, I haven't talked to the, the CIO there, Hero, about you know, this, this decision. Um, in my mind, it's just a, a useful lens to extend the time horizon of investing. So I, I don't view ESG as anything other than a long-term risk management tool. Add that lens, that lens helps you mitigate these long-term risks. 
And if I'm a $2.4 trillion public pension plan, I'm assuming that much of this asset base is going to be there for many decades, if not centuries. So you're taking a long-term view. And ESG is a great way of doing that. This whole notion of sustainability, I mean, this almost sounds like the intuitively obvious, but this whole notion of sustainability is tied to the, 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 the time horizon. And it's, and it's funny how so many long time horizon obligations like pensions and sovereign wealth funds have in some ways within the last decade or, or maybe it's because of the crisis rediscovered the fact that they're long term obligations and long term asset holders and therefore long tail risk. And it's been interesting for me personally that one of the changing points of the conversation about sustainability occurred when we introduced time horizon into it, which is, which is so obvious. And, and yet that single simple notion, I think, is what has changed much of the conversation. I think that's, that's a sign that the conversations have really shifted to the mainstream. The, the climate investment isn't just something that's being added into a special opportunities bucket anymore. It's sustainability and it's a core investment belief, whether you're Ontario teachers with 90% of your assets in-house or you're, you know, New York City and you've got 100% of your assets managed through managers. I, I think what's interesting and, and again, for in, in many ways, it's the reason that we wanted to start this podcast series. And, and that's that in the impact investing oriented conversation, there's a, still a tendency to talk about impact investing as quote unquote, something special within the asset uh, or the asset allocation model or even its own separate little carve out. And, and, and the most interesting institutional investors, whether it's GPIF, New York Common, as you've talked about, uh, are all reframing this within the time horizon, within sustainability as a, as a core protocol, but they're embedding this across the entire, quote-unquote, investment belief or the investment protocol. And I think that's a major, major shift and, and, and a very, very distinct difference in, in, in approach. And we're applying these to pools of capital that are literally in the hundreds of billions of dollars. That being said, is capital moving? And are you seeing tangible movement of blocks of capital along these investment beliefs that in fact are, as you said, you know, obvious executions of value creation? We are. I mean, the, the beauty of focusing on the asset owner community is that if you can even move them one or two degrees off of their North Star, um, you're going to move trillions of dollars. And so that, that's the difference with the impact investment sphere. Like The impact investment sphere is a smaller pool of capital. We can do a lot with that. And I love it when that capital actually serves to move the main market, which is why I like that term impact alpha that you guys have, because at anywhere investors see alpha, there's going to be money chasing it. Ashby, you've just uh, rung the bell for our, our drinking game by mentioning the word Impact Alpha on the, on the podcast. So I wish I had a drink with me. I would uh, pound one. Um, let me do it again for you because we actually did a conference 
probably in 2016. I don't know when you guys got going, where we were doing uh, looking at sovereign development funds from around the world and how they were generating double digit returns while having a development objective, which seemed to go against what all of these pension funds were saying. How is Tomasek generating 18% returns over 40 years while they had a very strong development objective? We just called it Impact Alpha. And that was what the conference was. And, and I believe you can really attract mainstream capital if you are generating alpha. And if you're using an impact lens to do that, so much the better. You're going to have some positive effects and externalities for the broader world. Um, the bigger question here that, that Dave is asking is, are, are we finally seeing capital moving in this direction? And the answer is yes. You know, I think in the AI, we... We've seen, um, oh, that's the aligned intermediary. We've seen, you know, over a hundred million dollars in deals come through and, and be closed. Uh, we've seen lots more transactions come through the AI. So remember, we only have 12 members. And I think over the last year and a half, uh, I'd have to check with Peter Davidson and the team. So don't quote me on these numbers as like firm, but it's something like we've seen 300 deals. And we've taken about 30 of those deals and distributed them to the membership based on the membership's profile and interest and, and all those things that I talked about earlier. And of those 30 deals, um, I think it was something like more than 20 of them were closed with institutional capital and a subset of those, a much smaller subset with the AI membership capital. So we see a lot of deals closing and we see really smart investors coming back into the sector because the return profile is attractive. And I might add, because these investors see each other doing deals in the space. And I don't want to say that like, this is a, you know, follow the leader world, but there is a herd mentality in the pension fund space. We have something called the prudent person rule, which says, don't do anything your neighbor wouldn't do. That's a simplification. But in that prudent person world, showing investors that you can do this and make money at it is incredibly powerful. That's another one of the judo moves that we use. You know, let's show all these investors that 20 plus deals got done with very favorable risk return profiles. And the people that invested in those deals are very smart investors. And that's probably that pool is probably over a billion dollars in the last uh, year. So we see deals getting done. A lot of this conversation has centered around sustainability as it oftentimes is associated with, I'll call it environmental risk and environmental sectors. How about the other part of sustainability, which is the people part and whether it's social inequality, uh, the segmentation of society and uh, disparities, or the simple issue of the SDGs and raising people out of poverty, making sure that they have proper uh, health care, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I'm wondering, how are these factors or market failures or market opportunities figuring into forward investment strategies? It's just smart long-term investing. So... If you're a hedge fund and you're getting in and out every month or quarter, some of the types of risks that you just mentioned matter little. The chances of that dislocating 
the asset I'm invested in are very low. If I'm planning on investing in an asset and holding it for 10 years, eight years, five years, the chances increase dramatically. And so this is why you will look around the world and see so many people saying, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could get back to this long-term investment um, mindset uh, and away from this short-term rent-seeking mindset? And, and so that's the project. And I think as we can extend that time horizon of the investor, it becomes all the more natural to ask questions about labor practices, about um, governance and social and environmental issues. And, and so these organizations that are building direct investment policies are taking it seriously. I mean, I won't say who, but I'm on the board of one of these um, super funds in Australia They've got a big real estate entity, and they're incredibly detailed about the ESG frameworks and thinking about the long-term consequences because they literally plan to hold these assets for 20 years, unless the market shows up and offers them a multiple that's ridiculous. So that's the value of long-termism. Ashby, let me just put it to you, which is, you know, we've talked about these big pools as super tankers and, you know, they're huge, but they turn slowly. Um, and yet the problems and, you know, climate being the most prominent example, you know, have a certain urgency to them. So how does the slowness of moving of this, of this kind of capital and the urgency required on the challenge side, you know, are we going to get there, I guess is the simplest way to put it. Yeah. I, I try to create urgency by, um, by like tying some of this to the pension obligations that they have that are often underfunded or to the expected return target that they have as a sovereign fund or an endowment. Up until now, the world of private markets has benefited incredibly from that urgency. Uh, the actuaries told us that if we put more in illiquid assets or in hedge funds or in you know alpha-seeking, long-only strategies, the actuaries would allow us to have a higher expected return, which would lower the uh, future cost of the pension liability. All of that kind of played against us for a long time in moving capital into things like climate infrastructure and played into the hands of the asset managers. And so we had this weird marriage between the furthest left uh, folks in our society that are really lobbying hard to get pension benefits increased and secure the social welfare state. And they're kind of looking to the hedge fund and private equity fund community to help them do that. And adding allocation upon allocation to those very risky asset classes in order to make a pension promise more secure. It's kind of a, an ironic marriage. But over time, and especially over the last five years, we've seen the true cost, uh, and I mean that, like fees and costs, of that private equity model, of that hedge fund model coming back to these pension funds, challenging the way they have sought to fill these promises. So right now, I'm optimistic that as all these organizations around the world are realizing the high costs associated with these hedge funds and private equity funds, and that the performance isn't necessarily a guarantee, and that you need to be thoughtful and creative in the way you build these portfolios in order to meet these obligations if you're going to generate this higher return. 
And all of a sudden, we get these pension funds asking a very important question. Is there another way? And it's in that moment that we can move the super tanker. I mean, you'll see this week, CalPERS announced a new $13 billion direct private equity program. That came out of a fee and cost revelation from the private equity team at CalPERS two or three years ago. You can probably still find the YouTube. And the link between that fee and cost realization, how much we're paying Wall Street to go and help us secure this pension promise, will lead us to an opportunity where pensions and sovereign funds around the world will say, is there another way? And it's in that moment that we, the kind of innovators of financial services and institutional investment, can overlay sustainability into whatever comes next. Because whatever comes next, we hope, is more tailored and designed for that long-term investment community. The urgency aspect, I'm reminded of uh, what Hero, the GPIF CIO, said a couple of years ago at the Milken Global uh, when he was asked this question. And he sort of said in that very Japanese Zen-like way, what good is a pension check when it's 117 degrees Fahrenheit outside? <laughs> yeah. So. So with that, I, I think I'll bring this to a close. And, uh, and, and I think that this is a great way to kick off a number of the, of the, of the thoughts and thematics that we're going to be opening up, I hope, here on this uh, Institutional Shift podcast. And that is what's really happening uh, in these big super tankers that uh, is, in fact, setting the tone and affecting the way we think about sustainability in our portfolios and and the fact that there's literally billions that are being allocated to this. Uh, I oftentimes remind people that, that, that between the years 2000 and, and 2015-16 here in the U.S. that uh, in fact our renewable energy policies did work and, and in fact brought somewhere around a half a trillion dollars of capital to uh, wind and solar. And, uh, you know, and you just have to look at the math. You know, there's 80, 90 uh, gigawatts that have been installed. And you sort of do the math on that. And, and so the capital markets are incredibly swift. And these large-scale institutional investors do have a very, very influential and substantive role to play. With that, I, I just want to thank you, Ashby. You've been provocative, funny, and uh, we hope to have you back. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a big honor. And thank you, Dave, for bringing Ashby along and for giving me the chance to have a, a bird's eye view on this conversation and, and, and our listeners as well. So thanks to both of you. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment, Institutional Shift. Thanks to Dave Chen, Ashby Monk, and David Bank for that conversation. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment, Institutional Shift. Institutional Shift.